Father, we, um, we come before you and we admit our need before you. We need your Holy Spirit to open this word to us today. We need, um, we need eyes to see and, and ears to hear. And so would you do that in our hearts? We come before you admitting that um, it is only by your hand that, um, that we are saved, that we, can, that we can truly know you. Thanks for all this stuff that's happening around here. Thank you for the, the joy it is to partner with you. And may we always do it with you, Jesus. Pray your blessing on this morning. We thank you for this church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're finally here. We're at the last letter in Revelation chapter 3 in the book called, yes, the Revelation of Jesus. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. That's the last time, maybe for a little bit, that I'll make you do that. Um, the Revelation of Jesus. As we've worked our way through these seven letters in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, we, we've read of so many character points of Jesus. And, and if you use notes, uh, the notes on the back, on the back side of the note page today, I've given you just a few. Um, there's quite a list of things that we have gone through, different ways that Jesus has revealed himself through this word that we've been studying over the past couple months. And, and this isn't even ex an extensive list. But um, we're going to go just rifle through this for the sake of maybe it will refresh in your mind maybe what something that you may have forgotten or maybe there will be something that's said that, that uh, you need to go back and go over again because this person of Jesus, he is so, there's so much to him. We are never done learning about him. We've seen him as the son of man. We've seen that he holds the church leaders close. We've seen that he is present with his church. He's the first, the last. He died, he came to life. We've seen that his words are a double-edged sword. We've seen that he's the son of God. He has eyes of flame and everything that that means. We've seen that he has the feet of bronze and as the true judge. We've seen that he has the fullness of the spirit. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He has the key of David, as we learned last week, who opens and shuts doors, any door he wants that can, no one can open or shut. And that's just a little bit. That's not even everything that's in this passage that Jesus shows to us about himself. And, and so Jesus is amazing, amen? He is the reason we're here this morning. And so I pray, I hope that as we dig into this last letter, we would see Jesus, we would respond to him. Our aim has been to fix our eyes on him as we read this passage and to align our hearts with his will for the church, to be a church that would be after his heart. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we gain a knowledge of who he is, we make it our goal to make Jesus our first love, our very first love more than anything else, that he would absolutely permeate every single aspect of our lives. And so before we jump into the letter, I wanted to review these things because there is no end to the person of Jesus. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. So he is wholly worthy of our adoration. He has, is absolutely transcendent. There is no other like him. Yet he is so gracious and generous that he would actually meet with us and live life with us. And we experience that, actually, as we worship together this morning. There's something special that happens. God is present, and he is here with us even now as we open his word and as we are here together. Isn't that an amazing gift? 
That's an amazing, okay, nobody's convinced. That's an, I'll tell you, that's an amazing gift. I promise you, he is so gracious and so, so generous. So it's with that heart that we're gonna dive into this last letter today, that we would see Jesus, that we would hear his words, and that we would respond then in faith to those words. So we're gonna read today the letter to Laodicea. We've been working through uh, all of the letters, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia was last week, and now we're finally at Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea was one of the wealthiest of the seven cities. So it was incredibly wealthy place that was situated. It was on a major Roman trading route. And many ruins actually still exist uh, in Laodicea today. So we actually have way more information about this city than, than many of the others because, you, as you can see, many of the ruins, there's still actually incredible detail even in the pillars that are, that are still preserved today. It was known for a few things as well. It was a hub for banking. It had a major manufacturing of wool and clothing. And it also had a very famous medical school in this city. So it was a very um, productive, it was a very affluent city. And it's actually really amazing that we have all of this history because Jesus' words to us, as we're about to find out, actually speaks specifically to the things that Laodicea was known for. And that's pretty neat. So, you know, Laodicea had aqueducts. They, this is not an aqueduct. What's that? That is where, where they would come together. It's called the baths in the, in the city. And so uh, they had aqueducts because there was no water in Laodicea. So they had hot water that would come in from Herapolis. Or I don't, oh, that's the wrong clicker. Herapolis, they, they got hot water from the hot springs there. Uh, that was 10 kilometers away. So they had run these aqueducts with clay pipes. And, and I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd for this kind of stuff. I, I was in the trades, and I'm just thinking of how to accomplish this. It's actually an amazing feat. And it wasn't even gravity-fed. It was a siphon, siphoned system from 10 kilometers away. I just can't, can't imagine that. And then their cold water, so that was their hot water. Their cold water came from Colossae, which was 17 kilometers away. They actually siphoned this in. So they were very, very smart people. They were, they were obviously very affluent and, and living very comfortably for the day. And, and this is the city that Jesus is going to address through John. So if you got your Bibles, jump open to Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. It says, And to the angel or to the messenger, as we've looked at, of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So other weeks, we've kind of gone ahead and jumped back to what Jesus has revealed about himself, but today we're going to start right here. Today we're going to start with these three different aspects and the way that Jesus reveals himself to the church. And again, Jesus reveals these aspects of his nature of his character, and they're going to be so crucial for the church to embrace, for the church to understand, if they're going to overcome the things that Christ is going to call them to overcome. And he's gracious enough to give them very specific revelation of himself for very specific things that they need to overcome. First, he says, Jesus is the, the amen. The word amen literally means truth or 
to be true. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, it, it describes God as the God of truth, but the literal translation in the Hebrew actually is the God of Amen. And so as the Amen, Jesus lives in full agreement with that God of truth, God the Father. Jesus lives in full agreement with the Father, and he requires actually that we also agree with him as the truth to release the certainty of his blessings and his promises to you. We need to agree with him in that. He also says that he is the faithful and true witness. This means everything Jesus speaks is reliable and is true. I think we mostly get this one. Like, we would obviously say that, right? I mean, he sees everything. And as he witnesses your life, every single thing he says about it will be true. And Jesus is about to tell the church in Laodicea the truth in both positive and negative ways. He's going to reveal great promises to them and great hope to them. He's also going to share with them the hard reality of their spiritual state before him. Jesus is not in the business of exaggerating. He's not in the business of flattering. Uh, he doesn't also unjustly criticize what he sees and, and shows to you is truth. In fact, he's more than generous in his evaluation of us. And Jesus is also the beginning of God's creation. And so this is to say that he is the first cause. He's the reason for creation. All the power and the reason for creation belongs with Jesus. Uh, some places, some, and, I, and I bring this up only to, because you'll probably hear about this, some people uh, will, will interpret this and say that Jesus is the first creation of God. And that just, there's so many scripture passages that that doesn't line up with. And, and it ends up going down this road that many, many cults end up that Jesus was a, was a great teacher, but not a co-equal with the Father. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word is Jesus. And so, obviously, it can't mean that he was God's first creation. Other Bible translations, they, they use the word, uh, the beginning here, as originator, or the ruler of, or the source of creation. And all of those things are absolutely true. And so as Jesus brings some hard news to his beloved church, he wants them to understand that this is the creator of the earth and everything in it, and the one with all authority, the one who sees all things plainly and clearly, he is the one speaking to them. Jesus is revealing these three parts of his nature. He's setting up what he's about to tell them next. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. And he's speaking directly to their aqueduct system. They, they would in, immediately understand what Jesus is talking about here. Cold water is great. Hot water is great. Lukewarm water is not so useful. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. The true witness, remember the true witness, just gave some very hard words to the church. See, he sees their works. He knows their devotion. He knows their motives for everything they do. And he finds them to be passive and he finds them to be lukewarm. And what is the great commandment? 
to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, like all, everything you've got. Now, does it sound like there's any room in there for any lukewarm spirituality? No, no, there is absolutely no way. See, the problem in Laodicea was that they had drifted in their devotion to Jesus and had become spiritually lukewarm. There is absolutely no place. This is the word of God. This, there is absolutely no place for a half-hearted devotion to a holy, worthy God and a transcendent God, to a God that would love you enough to come to earth in the flesh, would suffer and die on the cross for you, even if you still hated him, and he would count it joy to do so. There is no room for being lukewarm about that kind of God. Amen? He loves you that much. We sang of his love. There is no room for apathy and passivity in the church. Yet, it's so terrifying to me that a large portion of the church lives this way today. A large portion of the church. In fact, as, as I study, it, it is fairly common belief, and I would have to agree that uh, the church in Laodicea in a large, large way represents North America today. It's a very much a parallel. We have it very, very well. Hear me this morning because I love you guys. First Love, this series that we're doing, it's not just a cute name for a series. It is the life that we must have, that we must cultivate as followers of Christ. It's a non-negotiable for Jesus. And it's not going to be overnight. I mean, sometimes you hear those radical conversion stories, and it is. But for most, all of us, it's going to be a step-by-step journey. Jesus just asks that we seek him, that we invite him in. Because that Jesus would spit you out of his mouth is a terrifying thought. You know, it makes his stomach sick just thinking about how you neglect the relationship that he offers you and the, and the relationship and the riches that he wants to give you. It's not that I don't believe he's repulsed or disgusted by his people. This is his church, who he calls, who he calls his beloved. But I think he's just so grieved and he's sick over the people that he has to discipline. It's his beloved. That is us as well. That's our inheritance. It says this in Isaiah, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. God is feeling the pain of this. In his love, he redeemed them. He said, I've given the beloved of my soul. That's a very, very rich word. Into the hands of her enemies. He doesn't love that. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. See, he's grieved over our neglect to cultivate a relationship with him. He's grieved over the, the state of a, of a person who is lukewarm in their devotion to him. So Jesus calls Laodicea out for their lukewarm state and, it's, and is bringing discipline and rebuke. Why? So that they would be rich in God. That's why he's doing it. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea, they were so content in their prosperity and in the financial blessings on their church, and they, they even misinterpreted, I believe, uh, all of this stuff as, as God's approval of their spiritual life. 
And church, you know what? We live in Canada, and we are rich. We are rich. I take these passages incredibly seriously. We are so rich. There are many hurting and struggling people here, absolutely, and we need to take care of them. Yet, in Canada, even our poorest of poor are rich by the world standards, if you look around. And it is so easy to be blinded by that, by those riches. Because when we are blessed with abundance and earthly riches, we quickly can throw out a reliance on God. We can think everything's just fine. We don't need God. We can be content with our money and our things to sustain us. I mean, the fact that we're all sitting in this room this morning means we had a vehicle, somebody had a vehicle to get us here. That's pretty incredible. You know, none of these things are bad at all in and of themselves. Not, not at all. If they're God-given and they're submitted to his leadership, they're wonderful. But Jesus, who, remember, he sees things as they truly are, he points out the truth. Their spiritual state was wretched, it was pitiable, it was poor, they were blind and naked. They were dull, they lost their appetite somewhere along the line for the word and for prayer. They were spiritually poor, not having a living, powerful relationship with Jesus. The one they claimed to have faith in. Even though they were rich in material things, they were truly at the root of what matters. They were poor. And they were also blind. And we've talked about this in this series already, the idea that we can be blind to our blindness. We can be blind to the state of our, our relationship with God. We, we can be completely oblivious they couldn't see the true state of their spiritual life. They were blind. They were so distracted. They were blinded by, by I'll use this picture, by cataracts formed by sinful compromise and by neglecting their relationship with God. They were blinded. We've spoken about the necessity to seek God, to ask him, search me, O God, know my heart, right? That God would open our eyes to the truth of our spiritual state before him. We need to seek the Holy Spirit to show us the truth of our lives. Since often we can be blind to our sin, our apathy, our own brokenness, because without God, we're a mess. That's just the truth. But with God, he's a healer and a redeemer. This is the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. This is the God who is, who is speaking. So he lovingly counsels them he hasn't given up on them. It's not like that he's heaping shame on them. Don't feel that this morning. He's showing them the truth that they would be redeemed to him. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I love this verse. If you think back to what Laodicea was known for, um, knowing about that city, Jesus is speaking directly to them in terms that they're going to understand. He says, you think you're rich. You're, you're a banking city. You know a lot about commerce. Well, guess what? You are staking all of your trust in that, but I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by fire. I have riches. I have gold that you can acquire in a deep relationship with me, that is going to be far better, far better than any, any earthly treasure that you are doing. And he says, buy white garments from Jesus to cover your shame. 
And again, Jesus says to them specifically, sure, you're great at making wool. I see that. Good job with that. But I have something way better for you. I have a far greater reward coming to you if you would overcome in this way. The clothes I have for you will be a far greater reward. It'll be like nothing that you've ever seen if you overcome a lukewarm faith. I believe this speaks of, speaks of a freeing them of the shame of a life lived in passivity and lukewarmness. I believe that it frees, I, I, that it's speaking of that, but it's also speaking, we've talked about the garments, the clothing that we will receive in the age to come for those that overcome. And it's go, we don't fully understand it, and that's okay, but Jesus says it's going to matter, that we have clothing that he's going to give those specific faithful people in the age to come. And it's going to be marvelous because that's who our God is. It's going to be amazing. And you remember, too, that Laodicea was renowned for its medical school. So this medical school was known, they, they exported all around the, the land in that area, they exported this medical school a powder. And this powder was for making an ointment, and it was for specific eye diseases. And so they were curing eye diseases, and they were remedying eye disease. I mean, it's not modern medicine, but it was, uh, it was a huge uh, part of that world. And so I'm sure they were feeling very, very good about that. It's, it is an, an amazing feat. But Jesus tells them that they are spiritually blind. And now he says that he alone, he alone, has the cure for their blindness. They can only buy it from him. He is the only one that can cure their blindness. He said they were blind. He has the cure. Notice that this takes action. Buy from me gold and buy garments and salve to anoint your eyes. There's, there's something that we as believers, God's people, we have to take action in the grace of God to cure your spiritually sick eyes. You have to take action in this to activate the healing that Jesus offers in relationship with him. And only the Spirit can open our eyes, as Ephesians says, as we feed on the word. Seek him. Ask for sight. Ask for healing for your blind spots. The areas of compromise in your life that are, that are making you lukewarm, seek God out for those things. The things that are pulling you away from living a first love kind of lifestyle. And sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes they're just blatant sin issues, but sometimes they're a little more subtle, right? And we need this Holy Spirit to speak to us, to allow us to be in such close communion with God. It can even be as simple like Laodicea as just being comfortable with the blessing of, of wealth that would result in not pursuing God for a deeper relationship. And again, Jesus calls out these hard things, not to shame, not to condemn, but because he's contending for the church's greatness and, the, and wholeness in Christ. That's what he's going for. He says, those whom I love. He's, he doesn't hate the church in Laodicea. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be, so be zealous and repent. Okay, have we ever gone through a verse kind of like this before, maybe 
like a dozen times in the last little while about repentance, right? I mean, we might have explored this a few times in this church, but this message never gets old to Jesus. He, claim, he came proclaiming a message of hope and a message of repentance. He came full of love and full of truth and full of grace. But he disciplines those he loves uh, because he made you. He's the beginning of creation, and he knows what's best. He made your spiritual being, and he knows absolutely every aspect of it and how it's going to live in the healthiest way possible. And so he says, be zealous and repent. Well, repentance, we understand, it's, it's that changing of one's mind and to turn 180 degrees and go the other way. When you were going in, in sinful compromise, say, the realization that that is wrong, and to turn 180 degrees and to head the other direction. That's repentance. But, you know, when I read, be zealous, how is this command here? And, and I, I wrestled with this. I mean, is there any way to just muster up a, a zeal, a passion for God? Is there any way to just bear down and, and muster it up? Because he says, be jealous. You know what? I don't actually think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is, is saying here. But what is he saying then? So I had to wrestle with this. How can we just flip a switch and be zealous and passionate for God to fight against our spiritually lukewarm state when, when nothing else has changed? I don't, I don't think it's possible. I don't believe we can do that. Uh, we can put on a face. We can pretend for a while. But eventually, you're going to drift back into that dull state. You're going to drift back into passivity, and it's going to come back on strong. You know, we need to understand something crucial about being lukewarm. So yes, Jesus points out the problem is that they are, they are lukewarm. But hear me on this. Being lukewarm, we need to understand this, is not the root issue. Being lukewarm is not a root issue. Being lukewarm is a symptom. Being lukewarm is a symptom. It's a symptom of compromise in pursuing intimacy with Jesus. There's no way you can muster up zeal and passion in your own strength. Being zealous, being passionate for God, is a byproduct, is a symptom of knowing God. That's what it is, of seeing and knowing Jesus, the lover of your soul. See, it's like this. Many, actually, many people today, I already know from the first service, are homesick with a fever right? And so if you're homesick with a fever and you think the fever is just caused by the common cold or the flu bug that's going around, then you're just going to kind of sit back and, and let it ride out and, and it's going to pass and you'll be fine. You're not really going to be passionate about fighting that, uh, fighting that cold. It's just gonna, it's going to be over. The fever will leave in a day or two. But if you've got results back, that the fever, same symptom, absolutely the same symptom, same fever. If you got news back that that fever was actually caused by an, a very aggressive form of cancer that is destroying you inside, you are going to be zealous and you are going to be passionate to destroy the root that is causing the symptom. You following me? I think many times we think that lukewarmness is just some whatever thing that's just going to pass, that it's going to be all right. But we need to 
to realize we need to put on the salve on our eyes that Jesus offers, that we would see the root for what it really is. That being lukewarm is not likened to a common cold. It is a cancer that is killing, killing you. And it's killing the church. It is killing you. And so that, when you see that, when the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you, then you will respond with zeal. You will respond with passion towards Jesus, the only one who can heal. Because I have good news. Our God is a masterful healer. And if you're blinded, he can heal your eyes, and then he can then take you out of that spiritual state of being lukewarm. He is more than capable of moving you from being lukewarm to being zealous and passionate for him, in relationship with him. That you would just love going to prayer and love his word and, and, and love his works. That this would be the top priority in your life. I mean, isn't that a good word? Being lukewarm is not just whatever. It is very real and very serious. This is what God wants to do in you. Maybe even right now this morning. Because Jesus says this, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is such a close and intimate relationship that Jesus offers. And you know, last week, last week we looked at how Jesus opens doors, right? He opens any door he wants. He closes any door he wants. He is, has all authority. He can do that. But there's one door that he's not going to force open. I mean, as he sovereignly says, doors open and close, but he will not force open the door to your life, the door to your heart. I mean, he's going to be chasing after you. He may even hem you in with circumstances. I mean, that's his knocking. He might place roadblocks in your life to get your attention. But ultimately, you have to be the one to open the door and allow him access to your life. This is the really the only appropriate response to neglecting a first love lifestyle with Jesus. Open the door to Jesus. Open the door. This isn't talking about just a one-time uh, Jesus come into my life prayer and then you're saved and that's it. No, daily open the door to Jesus. He is knocking. I mean, you can really only call him Lord if you open the door to allowing him to guide your life, to have the final say in your life, to be the Lord of your life. You can only call him friend if you open the door and he would come in to your life and that you would spend time getting to know him. You can only call him friend if you've spent time getting to know him. You can only call him savior if you've opened the door of saving faith. That he is who he says he is. That he is the only way to salvation. You need to open all of those doors. That your entire allegiance would be to God and Jesus alone. See, when, when we ne neglect to invest the time and energy to open the door of our heart to Jesus, it's not that we're loved less by, by him. Not at all. But what we're doing is we minimize our ability to enjoy relating to him. We are hurting ourselves. It's self-destruction. And Jesus is knocking. 
to receive deeper understanding of him in your spirit, to enjoy godly fellowship, and to receive eternal rewards. It's just good, 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 good that Jesus offers when he's knocking. And we've got to open that door. If the church will open the door to Christ in their lives, a greater intimacy with Jesus will happen. And let yourself imagine for a moment, what would a church look like if that was the primary goal? I mean, it would look like more believers abounding in the fruit of the Spirit, so there'd be less petty fighting, and there would be less uh, controversies and bickering. I mean, there'd be more patience, love, self-control, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness. I mean, as we open the door and Jesus moves in, we will be made like him. I want a church full of people that are growing to be more like that. We're not going to be perfect, but I want a church that is headed that direction, no matter where you are on the line. I want a church that's headed that direction. I'm pretty sure you do too. Do you want that? Yes. It starts with you. It starts with you to open the door to Jesus every single day, to say, come on in, my life is yours. And you know when Jesus comes through that door, then you can say, you might have a few things that you need to clean up inside there, and that's good, that's his grace. He'll say, clean this up, but really, we get to say, Jesus, teach me how to be yours. Jesus, teach me, you're here now, I wanna, I wanna know how to be yours. Would you teach me the way, the way that, of life that you promised that is full? Each and every day. It's not like I said that you just pray, pray this prayer once and, and, and it's just done. You open the door to Jesus. The Christian life is a daily, deliberate act of inviting Jesus into every aspect of your life. That's what the Christian life looks like. And when that happens, I assure you, I promise that step by step, step by step, there will be no more room for lukewarm Christianity for you because Jesus is that amazing when you get to know him. There is no more room for anything lukewarm. You'll see the greater pleasure, the greater treasure that is found in Jesus alone. So open the door, open it wide. I mean, it can look as simple as this. It can look as simple as opening your Bible and asking the Lord to speak to you through it. Many of us don't get that far. It can look that simple to start out that way. Start praying. It could be, as we talked about last week, that you've been given a specific assignment from God, that God has spoken to you a specific assignment that he has for you, and you haven't been living in it. You've been ignoring it. And so your relationship, that closed door, is not allowing Jesus into your life in that area. Open that up. Get back on track in order to experience him again. He offers you gold. He offers you garments in the age to come and salve for your eyes. So seek him and he will reveal it to you. It's up to us, all of us, to receive all of those things that he offers and respond in cultivating a relationship with him. And you know, this week, uh, Tuesday, I, was, uh, I felt the symptom of being lukewarm. Um, I'm generally known as a fairly passionate person. I would say that's safe to say. But I noticed that my affections and, my, and my, my passion for Jesus was not where it needed to be. And so I knew that I needed one thing. I mean, I had a list of things I needed to do, but I knew that I needed one thing, and that was connection with Jesus. Um, I don't tell this story for any re- other reason than to build your faith in this, okay? So 
I knew that I was lukewarm that morning. So I have the privilege, I know many of you, I, I was an electrician, I get it, I work in during the day. I have the privilege of being able to come in here on a, on a weekday, but you can do this anytime. I came in here and I thought, you know what, even if I don't feel like it, Jesus is worthy of praise, and he is still on the throne. And so I came in here and started worshiping God. There's no formula to this, but I start worshiping God, and I just get the sense of God speaking and God saying, okay, I'm going to speak with you now. And I was excited because you remember last week we talked about how Jesus will manifest himself to his people? Well, I love to take God on his word, and so I seek that. I encourage you to. So I felt the presence of God in a very powerful way, right here, actually. I was, and so I laid out on the, um, on the chairs there, and, and Jesus, I had a sense that Jesus was, it was just like he was laying on the floor beside me. We were talking like we were 10 years old. He was my friend in that moment. He is my friend, and it's powerful. And, and I was able to share my heart with him, and yeah, he had some stuff for me to clean up. Nothing crazy, but it was hurting our relationship, and he told me that. And I cleaned it up, and we talked, and it was wonderful because he's my best friend, and he has amazing good things to say. And you know, you know I needed that I, because I left that time with such an increased zeal and such an increased passion for this Jesus whom I worship. If you don't see Jesus, if you don't meet with Jesus the way he promises that he will meet with you, you're going to be stunted. You will drift into lukewarmness more easily. I needed that. I need this so regularly. I'm so prone to wander. We all are. We need to open this door, not just once, every single day. See, he promised that he would manifest. That means his felt presence would be present with you to his people in this life as we love him in obedience to his word and as we earnestly seek him. I want to hold him to that promise. If he promises it, I want to seek him out on that because it's exactly those types of moments where he recharges me, that I rekindle a burning flame for Jesus, that I am passionate to be with him and to do for him. I'm not talking about all day, every day, being in that same exact type of manifest presence of God that intensely. I think it actually might get a bit exhausting, and he wants us to go out into the world with him. The Holy Spirit travels with you, but, but we need these encounters with Jesus. We need to seek him for them, that we would be zealous, that we would be passionate for our relationship. He promised this intimacy with us now, and it's the fuel for your life. He's, he said he, he's the daily bread. He is the sustenance. He is the way that you get to live. And if that's not enough, God is promising then to honor those who overcome, who, to honor those that live this kind of open-door lifestyle with God. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So in the age to come, when heaven meets earth, like we sang about, when heaven meets earth and Jesus is reigning in majesty and power on his throne and he's made everything new, and it's heaven and earth meet and it's just glorious, the believers that had the resolve to push past the lukewarm state and pursue intimacy with Jesus, they're going to be honored. As if 
every single other gift that we've talked about isn't enough, God would honor you in the age to come. That's a wonderful promise. And it's a motivation. It's a motivation to, to open the door and, and to deepen this relationship with Jesus. Really, there is no specific formula other than to seek God wholeheartedly, to get to know him through his word, to obey his word, to, to speak with him in conversation, to see his promise of nearness and intimacy come true in your life, step by wonderful step from glory to glory, to live out the great commandment in this life forever and ever, because it's never going to end. We're always going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we're going to do forever and ever. And as we sang today, I could sing of your love forever. We will sing of his love forever. And it's not going to get old. Never. We need to constantly seek him out. Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and understanding that, that we would actually understand that I, that's actually where I want to be. I will sing of your love forever. And that's going to be incredible. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because we need him for this. We need him. We live in a world of distraction. Our own minds are a distraction. We need to seek God. We need to ask, Holy Spirit, what, what are you saying to me through this passage? And Holy Spirit, what, what do you have to say to me? Remember how specific he was to Laodicea? He will be that specific to you. He knows your life. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. And he wants to have a relationship with you in the same way he did with Laodicea. We need him, always, always, always we need him to understand what he's saying. What a rich few chapters it's been, hey? I've loved seeing Jesus revealed. We finally reached the end of these letters, but I'm going to invite the worship team up because it has been amazing to, to see the person of Jesus, but there is no better response I could think of than to, than to worship him together as we as we end this series, um, God is worthy of all our praise. And if, if you felt him maybe speaking to you and, and convicting you of things as we worship, even right now you can say, Jesus, I want you to move me from being lukewarm to being zealous for you. Maybe he'll reveal some things in your life that, that you need to clean up as you invite him in. Do that. Right now you can simply say, Jesus, I want to run the other way from this. Would you forgive me? And then he's going he's gonna to come. And he's going to show himself to you. And as he does, pour out a heart of worship. He is worthy. Let's stand together.